the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Most athletes dream about standing on the Olympic podium receiving their gold medal, but few ever have the opportunity to actually do so. Today's guest, Ashley Johnson, knows what it feels like to earn gold. Ashley is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and goalie of Team USA Water Polo. She was named the top goaltender of the Olympic Games, having stopped an astounding 80 of 124 shots. Ashley is a Princeton graduate who is passionate about using her Olympic platform to inspire other women to pursue their dreams in any field. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jen. So, Ashley, let's start off by saying congratulations. What does it feel like to wear that gold medal around your neck? Thank you so much. I mean, it's heavy. It's (laughs) like physically heavy, but... um, It's awesome. The gold medal is a representation of all of the hard work over the past five years that our team has put into this and all of the dreams that we've each carried for each other and the dreams of our family. So it's it's a welcome weight. It's really, really cool. When did you start playing water polo and and how did you even get interested in the sport? I started playing water polo um, when I was nine and I started swimming with the swim team around the same time. I got interested in the sport actually because... The swim team that our mom put us in, me and my four siblings, just happened to have water polo. And next to swimming, water polo was so much more fun and engaging and dynamic. And it just drew the attention of my whole family. Like, we all love the sport, and it's carried us forward to this day. Well, I can understand you know, being a little bit more engaging. My boys are swimmers, so I'm a swim mom. And I know what it's like to travel two hours to a swim meet to watch them swim for about 30 seconds. So there's a little bit more excitement for the family. Yeah. And also training for all of those hours to swim for the 30 seconds. And (laughs) also um, 50 free uh, competitor. I swam with 50 free. So my race was short and it was fun. And I actually loved um, training with swimming. I loved like being in the pool, like just swimming, staring at the line was boring, but competing, I didn't really like being by myself on that block. You know, I didn't, the type of competition for me wasn't, it wasn't what it was right for me. I love being a part of a group. I love going towards a common goal with a team and water polo just had everything that I loved. Ashley, when people who have big dreams share those dreams with other people, oftentimes there are those naysayers who try to discourage us from following through and going for the gold like you did. Were there people in your life who tried to discourage you from dreaming big? Um, I'm, there were people who uh, maybe not directly tried to discourage me, but didn't really see the path or the pathways for me to get to where I am today. And it really might not have been intentional, but yeah, there are people who didn't believe in me, didn't um, understand where I could go with this sport. And I'm lucky because I had a lot. I had a lot more people who did believe in me and who did know how far this sport could take me, and that there were a lot of opportunities in here for me, and who encouraged me to continue playing when there are moments where maybe I wanted to give up or um, 
it got really hard and um, it wasn't very clear for me personally where I was going with the sport. I'm lucky to have had such a solid support system. In, in addition to that external support system, how did you yourself keep yourself mentally strong? Because so much of success, no matter what you're looking to achieve, whether it be in sports, professionally, no matter what it is, so much of it is the way that we think. So how were you able to keep those negative influences, those thoughts outside of your mind so it didn't distract you or stop you? I'm a highly competitive person. So everything that I've done in the sport has been about how competitive I am and how much I want to win, how much I am willing to work to win. And um, not that I always do win, like part of being an athlete, part of being in sport is that you're going to fail a lot. But um, the best reward for me is getting to those points where I have uh, success, whether that's getting a little bit faster in swimming, whether that's making one block, whether that's making a good pass or developing a relationship with a new teammate like all of those little wins um add up and it's it's just a really cool uh part of sport that it challenges you to grow and it challenges you to win but I also love that I have fun every single time I'm in the water every single time I'm playing and I don't think that if I were not having fun with this I would be able to do it for as long as I have because um I'm someone who's highly motivated by fun as well Whatever I'm doing, I want to do it well, and I want to be having fun with it. Well, I think you just made two great key points. The first one is that the success that you've achieved, you know, people think that you just go for that kill and and you, you know, people joke about being a 20-year overnight sensation, but it is those little wins, little win after little win that do accumulate and add up to the big win. And and the other thing that you said was the importance of having fun. You know, so many of us do things that we don't enjoy, and then we wonder why we don't succeed at it. So I think those were two really great points that you made. Yeah, and there's parts of this whole process that aren't fun, right? But Mm -hmm. um, part of being a part of a team, too, is finding the fun in the hub and finding the fun in giving your best effort and knowing that with the not fun part comes the fun. Like there's always going to be something that's engaging and for you in the process. And now when I look back, I, there were a lot of, lot of hard parts. There were so many um, difficult times being a part of this team, being in this process, just training for the Olympics and in the pursuit of gold. But what I really remember and hold on to are the fun times that I had with my teammates and the growth that I challenged myself to do and that the sport challenged, my, challenged me to have and that my teammates challenged me to, to do. You just mentioned when you look back, when you do look back, did you ever think that you would be where you are now? Do you pinch yourself all the time? I do. I It's, it's surreal um, having set a goal so ambitious and having reached it, but um, we've had a plan. Like our team has had a plan. Our coaches have, have had a plan for all of us. And um, when it comes down to it, it's about execution and it's about being ready in the moment when you need to be ready. And I have had full trust in this process, full trust in the preparation that we've put in, the time and effort, and full trust in our staff who have built this plan from our strength coach to our trainers to our head coaches and assistant coaches and all of my teammates. We've all worked really, really hard for this. And it doesn't always look like what you thought it was going to look like. Like there was a global pandemic. We had an extra year of training and um, preparation. There was so much uncertainty. Um, There were times when we didn't even know whether the Olympics were going to happen, whether we were going to even be able to go for our goal. So um, it might not look like, exactly what we planned it to look like but there's always a plan we're always driving towards something and um it's just about taking those little steps every day to get closer to that goal and execute the plan ashley we touched upon this a few moments ago there was a lot of attention on mental health issues and i can't even imagine the type of pressure olympic athletes have to endure to always be a winner so when you read articles about your performance or you see quotes when people are are critiquing you know people who haven't even they've never dove into a pool but yet they're tearing your performance apart how do you stay mentally strong and mentally fit to push that type of criticism aside that's that's a great question um i think that athletes do face a lot of external pressure on their performance 
in addition to getting at this level, getting to this level, the elite level of um, athletic, you have to put a lot of pressure on yourself as well and be hypercritical of your performance and be open to criti criticism and um, praise of your performance. But one thing that I've taken with me through my career is that I'm open to criticism and praise from certain people in my circles. And I know those people and I trust those people and I I know um, the limits of other people who are outside of that circle's knowledge, and it it really matters where you put the value of that criticism, where you um, how you internalize or don't internalize that criticism or praise, because some random people could be told, random person could be telling you how good or how bad you are, and they don't know the hours that you put in, they don't know the training that you put in, they don't know. Um, how much you've sacrificed or how far you've come. So really focusing on who that praise or criticism comes from is a really helpful thing for me to um, maintain my distance from that praise or criticism from someone who doesn't really know me, who doesn't really know me as an athlete and um, doesn't know my potential. Because you, you really can't take feedback from everyone. It's not realistic. It's not productive. And um, if your goal is to grow, if your goal is to learn, then uh, you, you're going to criticism is a really important piece of that. But it matters who it's coming from. Ashley, anyone who has played sports will tell you every game is important. But the big game, the day that you're playing for gold, can you take us through that day? Do you have rituals that you always do before games? Are you superstitious? What was it like for you? I really try hard not to be superstitious or stick to any sort of ritual outside of what our team has built in because our team has a really good system for coaching. Like we wake up, have meals together, um, have a morning swim to just loosen out and get our mind right, get our bodies warmed up. And then we kind of relax on our own and then get back together, have a pregame meeting, make sure that everyone knows the plays, the scouting, um, are ready to get into this game, start getting our minds prepared for actually playing. And then we have our real game warm up and just get into it. But at that point in that final game, or even going into the quarter semis finals, everything should be ironed out. Everything is um, just kind of review of what you've done a hundred times, a thousand times. So it's kind of, you're going through this routine that you've built over the past five years, four years on a, in a regular Olympic cycle, and it should be kind of second nature. But I try personally not to stick to any sort of routine because I don't want, um, if I don't have one thing that day, for it to affect me mentally, you know? But yeah, it's just about controlling what you can control and knowing that you've been in this moment so many times, so many different times that you just go through it. Your body knows, your mind knows, and you're prepared. There's a lot of self-talk that goes into that that day because no matter how many times you've been there, it's a huge deal to be playing in an Olympic final. It's a huge deal to be playing in the Olympics, to be um, on that kind of age performing. So, yeah, just reminding yourself that you've been there. You said it's a huge deal. Did you feel a big responsibility that like you're representing so many people? Um, I felt a big responsibility that I about the communities that I represent at different times. But when it's game time, I'm not thinking about anything but the game. I'm thinking about the players that I'm going to play against. I'm play, thinking about the players that I'm playing with and just executing the game plan, like I said, um, in the right way and making the right play and um, supporting my teammates through the game. I've heard you say that you represent people of color in aquatics. What are your hopes for those who are seeing your achievements? My hope for those who are seeing my achievement is that they can look at me and see themselves and know that there's a lot of opportunity in aquatic sports for people of color, that we belong here and that we excel here. And, um, I want them to know that this is a possibility. This is a pathway for excellence. This is a pathway for opportunity. And even if the only thing that someone takes from following the, the path that I followed is learning to swim or joining a swim team or going to college, there's so much here. There's something here for everyone. And I've just gotten so many opportunities through swimming and through water polo. I um, 
we'll do anything that I can to open up that opportunity to other people. And Ashley, finally, when someone looks at you, I mean, you've pretty much laid out what it took to get to where you are today. But somebody who's saying to themselves, I can't do what she did. That's just not in the cards for me. What do you say to that person, no matter what their dream may be? I say that if you want to do something, there's a way to do it. Find someone who's done it before and literally just ask them what the steps are. Ask them what the first step you can take is. If you take a big goal and you break it down into little steps or like the hardest thing is figuring out what that step, that first step is. So if you're envisioning the big picture, it might seem impossible, but if you believe in yourself and you have the right people supporting you, you can do anything. Ashley, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And again, congratulations. We are all so proud of you and your team. Thank you so much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. important information to make the best decision is Dr. David Hanscom, an orthopedic complex spinal deformity surgeon based in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Hanscom. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. So, Doctor, being told that you need spine surgery can be frightening. Do you believe that there are many surgeries that are performed today that may not be the best course of treatment? Um, I think probably the majority of spine surgeries should not be done, probably over 70%. And it's become sort of, that's actually why I quit. I didn't really retire, I quit. And I would see three to five patients every week having surgeries done on normal spines without rehab, with catastrophic results. And it was, it's really bad. Medicine right now is really hurting people, but especially in spine surgery, we're making quick decisions, we're doing major procedures, people are, are doing very poorly, and it's not going well for the public. Doctor, Operating on the spine, I mean, for me, that would be one of the last areas of my body that I would want to have touched. How did we get to this place where this is almost routine? You know, I'm not really sure. I sort of watched this happen. I was a resident back in the 80s, and they started doing fusions where where they weld the vertebrae together for back pain. It started in Australia. I trained in Hawaii. I watched it come across Hawaii. Then it hit the mainland. And then in 1997, they developed some new technology where they put instrumentation in front of the spine as well as back of the spine. And it allowed us a higher chance of getting a fusion. But in the midst of all this technology, nobody looked at the data. It turns out there's not one research paper that says we should be doing surgery for back pain, not one in 50 years. Have you heard what the success rate is for a back surgery for back pain? It's 22%. And then the other thing that I didn't realize until about maybe five years ago there's several research papers that document that if you operate and do any procedure in the presence of chronic pain, that you can worsen the outcome up to 40% of the time. In 5 to 10% of the time, it can become permanent. Doctor, what are the most common causes of back pain? We know the exact cause of back pain between 5 to 10% of the time. There's some type of tumor or broken bone or infection that we can identify the source. But with just plain back pain, we actually don't know. We postulate that it's the muscles, tendons, and ligaments around the spine. The most common reason for doing a back fusion for back pain is, quote, degenerative disc disease. I'm assuming you've heard that term. Ironic is that we don't know where back pain comes from, but we actually do know that chronic back pain does not come from a disc. The data shows very clearly that there's no correlation between back pain and bone spurs, arthritis, disc degeneration, bone to bone, 
None of those have been shown to be a cause of back pain. Yet it's the most common reason we do back surgery for back pain is for degenerated disc. The better term would be normally aging disc rather than, quote, degenerative disc disease. How much of a role does our lifestyle or even our emotions play in back pain? Well, they did a study out of Chicago, which is quite famous now, where they took a group of patients who had back pain for less than three months. There's a part of the brain called the nociceptive center, which means that the acute pain says it hurts. And on these research MRI scans called functional MRI scans, a certain part of the brain would light up. And that was true in every patient. Then they took a group of people who had back pain for more than 10 years. There's no activity in the pain center. It was only in the emotional center. Then they looked at the group of acute patients, less than three months of pain. They scanned them every three months. About half of those became chronic. The other half resolved. And the group that resolved, everything went quiet. And the group that became chronic, every one of them switched from the pain center to the emotional center. The current definition of chronic pain is that it is an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. It's like learning how to ride a bicycle. It becomes a permanently memorized set of circuits. Would the goal then be to create new pathways? Correct. So then should we be engaging in behavior that would produce more of the feel-good chemicals like serotonin, dopamine? Correct. And that is the solution. And what happens in pain, you're trapped. Nobody's telling exactly what's going on. It's been several papers have documented that the impact of chronic pain on people's lives is similar to having terminal cancer. It's that bad. Then patients get labeled, then they get bounced around the system, they have their hopes elevated, then they have their hopes dashed. It's actually been documented in animal studies that the way to induce a depression is to, to repeatedly dash hopes. And so you're in this system of being bounced around from procedure to procedure to procedure. You keep getting your hopes up, they keep getting dashed. Your life keeps falling apart, and living in chronic pain is one of the worst parts of the human experience, and one in three Americans has the problem. It's really wrecking our society. Then I think back surgery is actually a big factor in contributing to this because we do hundreds of thousands of these operations a year. About two-thirds of those should not be done. You're taking normally conscientious, active people and hurting their spines, damaging them, and it's a big problem. We're really hurting people, and that's why I quit. As the technology's gotten better, you think that spine surgery would improve. What happens is that we're now doing bigger operations that have a higher complication rate. Things have gotten much, much worse the last five years. Understanding the bigger picture, the poor results of the surgeries, the risk of complications, if you could write a prescription for someone who is suffering with back pain, what would that be? What should that person be doing before even considering surgery? Well, first of all, again, the acute pain goes to the pain center, and the usual good posture, biomechanics, rest, ice, heat, those things work well. Then the pain starts going past three or four months. Your brain is now starting to memorize the impulses, just like an athlete learning a skill. And it starts to become chronic, and that's where it becomes a complicated but not complicated solution. In other words, multiple things affect pain. For instance, there's a study out of Israel that shows lack of sleep actually causes back pain. It actually causes chronic back pain. And so first thing is sleep, making sure you get adequate rest. And that means consistently seven or eight hours a night for at least three months before you ever consider surgery. The second thing is stress. And people forget that with stress, it's not psychological, but when you're threatened either by a mental or physical threat, your body secretes stress hormones and you feel anxious. Well, anxiety is not a diagnosis. It's just, an, just a reflex that says danger. And we keep trying to treat anxiety psychologically where it's just a survival reflex. And it's much, much more powerful than, than the conscious brain. So if you try to deal with anxiety with conscious means, it's a big problem. The way you decrease anxiety is you decrease the stress chemicals. And that's where exercise, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, expressive writing exercises, forgiveness, all these things calm down the, the body chemistry and decrease anxiety. When you're trapped, in other words, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you're trapped by anything, whether it's finances or relationship or pain, your body secretes more stress chemicals in order to try to escape and solve the problem, and you become angry. Basically, anger and anxiety are the same thing. So one of the big factors in chronic pain is that people are really frustrated, and rightfully so, and processing that anger is a big deal. It's actually the biggest deal in the whole process is actually processing anger. The medication adjustment's a big deal. You have to get your medication stabilized. Your life outlook's a big deal, how you approach the pain in general. But the bottom line, the way you solve chronic pain, again, much different than acute pain, remember it's a memorized set of circuits, the essence of solving chronic pain is that basically you connect to your healing capacity, your own healing capacity, and you feel safe. And when you feel safe, you have a very 
pronounced profound change in your body's chemistry, your sense of well-being goes up, your nerve conduction slows down, you physically feel less pain. And what we've seen with hundreds of patients is people going to pain-free. They don't just manage the pain, the pain actually disappears. And doctor, what you just taught us, we're, we're talking about back pain, but I would assume that that would relate to any type of pain. Correct. So what happened now is in chronic pain myself for 15 years, I had 17 of the possible 30 symptoms of chronic pain, which included migraine headaches, ringing in my ears, PTSD, burning in my feet, skin rashes, back pain, neck pain. The list was long and I had 17 of them at the same time and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Nobody in the medical profession could tell me the problem. I heard a lecture in 2011 where this Dr. Schumer explained the relationship between elevated stress chemicals and the creation of physical symptoms. Remember when your body is bathed with adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines, the stress chemicals, that every cell is affected so that you'll get different symptoms. So I had 17 of these at the same time, and in about five minutes, it all made sense. Within six months after I, I would say the word awkwardly in retrospect, learned how to calm down my nervous system, every symptom disappeared. And 20 years later, I'm fine. The book is, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? If you would like to get more information about Dr. Hanscom and his work, you can visit backincontrol.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, in our final moments, what does someone need to know before having surgery? That the data shows really clearly that it's really critical to do what's called prehab, where you address every factor that deals with chronic pain. I did write a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, we had over 100 patients who canceled their surgeries, even with surgical problems, as they calmed down their nerve system and moved forward. But it's about a 90% self-directed process. You don't need a pain clinic. You can do it yourself at backincontrol.com. It's the action plan. Take responsibility. Spend at least as much time deciding on back surgery as you would buying a car. It's a huge deal. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Throughout the last decade, my professional life has taken many twists and turns. There are times that I operate by the seat of my pants, learning as I go, praying for the best possible outcome, following my intuition and my heart. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Follow your intuition, it knows the way. A while back, I began to work with a person who was assigned to my company's account. From the moment I met him, my entire body screamed, be careful. There was something about him that told me not to be too trusting. All the warning signs were there. My intuition was on the job. Now, I'm the type of person who wants to trust everyone, and I usually give people the benefit of the doubt many, many times. I want to believe that others have the same agenda and motives, so I push my inner guidance aside. This person dangled golden opportunities in front of me. He offered me more than I could have imagined, everything I wanted. It was easy for me to get caught up in his promises, but there was always that nagging feeling inside of me. Something didn't add up. There never was a straight answer to my questions, always a tap dance. After our first meeting, I couldn't sleep for a few nights. Even though I was excited about what was to come, I felt sick every time I recounted the opportunities to my friends. My body tightened and sometimes I actually shook. My nerves were on edge. But because he was answering my prayers, or so I thought at the time, I pushed the warning signs aside and worked with him. I took what he said and turned it into what I wanted to hear, what I wanted him to say. But there was always that nagging feeling inside of me. As time passed, he began to request more and more from my company in return for the promised opportunities, which, by the way, never materialized. I finally decided to listen to my inner guidance, which was screaming by this time, and I called him out. Once I stopped taking what he said at face value and held my ground, all the promises disappeared. He showed his true colors. It took months of anxious moments and many sleepless nights before I found the courage to follow what I knew from the beginning to be the right direction. I knew all along what was right for me. I just chose not to listen. Thankfully, I found the courage. Does this story sound familiar? How many times do you strive to make something fit the way you want it to while all the time knowing it's wrong for you? We all want to believe in others and try to please them, but at what cost? How long can you stay in a dying relationship or in a job that's making you sick? How many times can you keep saying yes while inside you're screaming no? We all have inner guidance to point us in the right direction. The problem is, more often than not, we don't listen. It's not always easy to stand up for what we want. Sometimes it seems impossible. 
but it's always worth it. The moment I stood up for myself, I began to sleep better and feel more relaxed. I could breathe. While I may not have gotten what I wanted this time, I know something better will come. Learn to trust yourself. Follow your intuition. It knows the way. You are stronger than you think and more wiser than you know. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more empowering tips and information, visit joanherman.com. At highway speeds, the average text takes your eyes off the road for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Stop texts, stoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. As a business owner, does it often feel like you're riding a roller coaster? Do you find yourself confronted by the demons of fear, inconsistency, and doubt? Today's guest, Suzanne Moore, dissects the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, and she teaches how to ride with arms stretched high rather than gripping in fear. Suzanne is a business and marketing coach, speaker, course creator, and author of the book, Hang On Tight, Learn to Love the Roller Coaster of Entrepreneurship. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm delighted to be here. Suzanne, Hang On Tight is your debut book. What was your motivation to write this book? Well, I think like so many people, I've had a dream of writing a book for a long time. And I had started one a number of years ago. And then when COVID came along, I thought, well, this is your chance. You don't have a life outside of your house. You might as well write the book. Uh, and I brushed off the old one and looked at it and said, this is not the book you need to write because it had been started five years before. And I I came to this one, a much more seasoned entrepreneur and one that finally felt like she had a message for people who were further behind her um, and and one that was of support and confidence and leadership. And so but I just I wanted to share that with with the women who are out there trying to build businesses and, and feeling a state of lack. You use the metaphor of riding a roller coaster to describe entrepreneurship. Why is knowing about the highs and lows of being a business owner so helpful? I think it's critical because when you are a business owner and you look around at others, what others share with you is all the good things that are happening, but what you feel in, inside yourself is all of the things that you haven't achieved, that you haven't done, the mistakes that you've made. And so what you see is the high highs of everybody else, and what you feel is the low lows of yourself. And then you'll have moments in your business where things go really, really well. And I think it's important to know that those may be followed by another high, but they might also be followed by a low, and that's okay. It's part of the journey. It, the, the lows make the highs sweeter, um, and often they inform your choices and teach you how to get to that next uh, achievement. So that's, that's why the metaphor just seems so appropriate to me. What do you think are the most important personal attributes for entrepreneurs? I think that entrepreneurs really have to be teachable and be willing to learn and recognize that they they can't and don't have to do it all themselves. So I many of us come to it and feel we're a solopreneur and we need to do all the things we need to build our business by ourselves we need to know everything we need to know and the truth is is that we're so much better off when we release some of the control and accept that others may know more about something than we know so i think i think being teachable and being coachable is probably the most important asset for an entrepreneur but Suzanne, what would you say to the person who is starting his or her business and says, well, sure, I don't want to do all of these things, but I don't have the funding to pay someone. How do you help someone overcome that challenge? It, that is a huge challenge. And I know I felt that way myself for so long. 
And I think the biggest thing is that making small steps in having someone support you is best for you and often best for building a sense of confidence in releasing the control over your business. And and also it's the best financially because you release that money a little bit at a time. Uh, and what you see when you do that is actually that investment allows you to grow and flourish more because you're able to use your time and energy in ways that are are more true to who you are and what your capabilities are rather than finding yourself in a state of frustration with something you'd be far better off letting someone else do for you um, and paying them to do it. Well, and I think a lot of us forget that time is money. So if we're bogging ourselves down doing these tasks that, first of all, we hate doing and we may not be very experienced at doing, it's keeping us from making more sales and, like you said, generating more revenue. It absolutely is. And in addition to that, I, it, it's not only bogging us down time-wise, I think it bogs us down emotionally, right? Because when you're sitting and doing tasks that you're not very good at, that just, it, 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 it makes you feel bad, right? And then you go to work on something that you're good at, but you, you carry into it that feeling bad, right? And so I think it's not just the time, it's also where it puts you in your head and emotionally. Suzanne, we're coming off a, a challenging period where we've had lockdowns and businesses have had to close and, and people have been unemployed. And from that, a lot of people are starting their own businesses. That is a result of what we've been through. Do you think that this is a really good time for you to release this book and teach these lessons? I do. I'm excited. I I didn't uh, write the book intentionally um, or release it uh, now to come out um, specifically around, you know, the opening up of the world. But I do think that it, there's a serendipity. Um, and I do hope that a lot of new uh, entrepreneurs, those who are thinking about starting businesses, will pick it up and will get some lessons from it, particularly around building a community around yourself, because that, to me, has probably been the most important thing in my, in my growth and evolution in my business. I agree with you. Community and relationships are really key. I, I've met so many people over the years that do what I call hit and runs. They burn bridges. They just try to see what they could get from someone and they move on. Why do you think that that's not the best approach in growing a business? Oh, my goodness. I think about all the the people that I've met throughout the years through networking, through different groups I've participated in. And I look back now and I have such solid relationships. And I believe I have those because I have tried very hard throughout my time to put relationships ahead of making money at all times. And I really believe that when you do that and you do it consistently, it comes around to you. I, there have been so many times when I've been stressed about money and you know felt like more was going out than coming in and all of the things that everyone feels. But I've acted, I hope, in all situations honorably. And I believe that I have because those relationships just come back now. And even, even with people I met, you know, eight or 10 years ago, I find that we have things in common and we support each other. And I just think it's the best way to be in business because you know what? You are your reputation. So as I mentioned, Hang On Tight is your debut book. As your first book, what did you learn about the writing and publishing process? I learned, well, actually, I learned that writing was very, uh, was very soothing to me. And it, it allowed me a lot of time for reflection that I don't necessarily take at other times. So that was, I think, very good for me mentally, especially as I wrote you know, during the period of time where none of us left our houses. So that was significant. And in terms of publishing, I know a lot of people who've self-published. And when I came down to it, I was I was intending to do that. But then I hooked up with a very good friend who has an independent publishing business. And I'm so thankful that I went 
with working with her because not only do I know that I have a product uh, and a quality book that I'm really, really proud of, but she taught me so much in the process. And it goes back to that being coachable thing that I was talking about earlier. I thought I could do it all myself, but boy, am I glad that I didn't Um, because I'm really proud of what my book is in its whole, not just the writing of it. Do you think it's a good idea for professionals to write a book to share their expertise? I do. I think it's one of the best things that we can do. I do think that there's a timing element, though. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs think of it as something they should do early in their uh, businesses. And I guess it depends on where they're coming from, if they're using expertise that they've had for many years in in a different uh, work environment. But I'm glad I waited. I'm glad I didn't release the book that I started five years ago because I think that what I have delivered has a lot more of me in it and a lot more of what I've learned along the way. And I think there's a lot more value in it than had I had I released that other book. The book is Hang On Tight, Learn to Love the Roller Coaster of Entrepreneurship by Suzanne Moore. If you'd like to get more information about Suzanne and her work, you can visit SuzanneTMoore.com. Suzanne, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oh, Joan, thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, there was a tic-tac-toe board. That turned into a pound sign on a phone, which has now turned into something called a hashtag. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, and today we're talking about hashtags and how to use them in a simple way. The good news is the right hashtags help people find you and find your message, so it's important to use them in the best way possible. First, do your homework. Look up the hashtags you want to use and make sure they actually mean what you think they mean. Look up your industry what you offer in your business, and even your location to get started. Also, note how many mentions of the hashtag there are. Second, save the hashtags in a spreadsheet or in a Word document. Group them by sections of how you use them. Put the ones you use all the time in the notes section of your phone. While this may seem like a lot of work, if you do it up front, it will make it so much simpler every time you post. Third, use a good mix. Some small mentions, some medium mentions, and even some large mentions. Finally, how many hashtags should you use on your posts? LinkedIn prefers three to five hashtags on your posts, but they'll allow you to use more. Just know that their algorithm favors the smaller number. Facebook also prefers a smaller number of hashtags, but allows you to really load up the post if you want to. We recommend five to 10 at the most. Instagram is a completely different story. It allows a maximum of 30 hashtags. If you need help with social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Hashtag simple social media. Do you suffer with heel pain? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, a podiatrist from Woodland Park, New Jersey, practicing at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. According to the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain. The condition occurs when the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot becomes inflamed. This ligament is responsible for supporting the foot's arch. Risk factors include being obese, having a very high arch, having tight calf muscles, and participating in activities that create stress on the heel bone. Activities such as running, jumping, certain workout routines. Most people can manage plantar fasciitis with at-home treatment. Resting the foot and applying ice can reduce inflammation. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or naproxen can help with pain management. Stretching the muscles of the leg thoroughly before and after physical activity, as well as throughout the day, may help to reduce the heel pain. Wearing supportive shoes as well as custom-molded orthotics can also help relieve the heel pain. If an individual's plantar fasciitis does not get better with these treatments, see a podiatrist for further treatment options. In today's medical world, there are several non-surgical options available to get rid of plantar fasciitis permanently. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. 
and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today to talk about health insurance protection is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. So, Lori, we spend a small fortune on health insurance every year. Is it a good investment? Joan, hands down, yes, it is, without a doubt. Having a good health insurance is a game changer when it comes to care, costs, and peace of mind. Of course, if you can independently finance the costs of your care on your own, you're in pretty good shape. But not many of us can. There are those that really can't afford health insurance as well, and we have seen them get you know, confronted with very difficult times in accessing care and also paying for it if they get it. So not only, Joan, is it a good investment to have health insurance for times of illness, it's actually now often a good investment in staying healthy. You know, many policies now offer all kinds of health and wellness options that many insured people do not even pay attention to, such as subsidizing gym memberships and coverage for some alternative therapies. That is why it's essential to read your plan, because if you don't, you could be letting opportunities to stay in good health pass you by. So you just mentioned the importance of reading and understanding our plan. How can we make sure that we're getting the most out of our policy? Real simple, Joan. Read it. Anyway, I highlight that in caps because all of us, myself included, years ago, we get that plan and we're like, wow, this is like a huge document. However, we've come across so many people that don't have any idea what is covered in their policy. So we always recommend you read it annually. Every year things can change. And sometimes we've had people come to us and say, well, they covered it last year. They don't this year. you got to read that plan. And if you don't have the time to really prove the many, many pages of the plan, which isn't always easily accessible, so you got to know that you can access it, you always get a summary of benefits and coverage, which is pretty much a overview, but you get the guts of what you need to know about. We suggest you print it out and keep it in the easy location so that you can and go over that whenever you need. Another big aspect is to develop um, and start your online portal with your insurance company and become very familiar with it. Everything you need is pretty much there. You just have to get up to speed with what it all means, and then you can kind of monitor everything as you go along. Um, You want to make sure ahead of time that any provider you're using, whether it's a hospital, emergency room, doctor, testing facility, or whatever is in your insurance plan because a lot of us have heard of surprise bills and people don't think about that ahead, you know, when they're in crisis. So it is important to plan. I mean, if you go to the ER, which a lot of people have been going to the ER, as we all know, uh, one policy may cover the cost of the visit, right? It's waived, you know, as long as you're admitted. But what happens if you're not admitted? You'll be hit with a 2000 to 5000 $10,000 bill. So it's important to know ahead of time what's covered. It helps you, guide you to make decisions and pick the right facility. So it's all about reading it. And you just mentioned surprise bills. You know, insurance policies used to seem so much easier, and now you have things like deductibles, co-pays, co-insurances. It's different percentages. So how can we then make sure that our bills are being paid properly? Great question, Joan. So I will say go right back to what I just said. Go back to your summary and benefits and coverage and know what your allotted amounts for deductibles, what you're charged for co-pay and co-insurance. Some people don't even know what these terms mean, but I'll give you a really brief one. Deductible is the amount of money you have to pay before the insurance benefits um, kick in. Co-payment is really a specific dollar amount that you're required to pay at the time of the doctor's visit, like for your PCP or your special. That's a set amount. Co-insurance is also known as allowed amount. You'll see on your explanation of benefits, which is what we refer to as EOB, that details everything that happened during the visit. 
And the coinsurance is really after the deductible is met, your coinsurance is the expense to be paid by you, which is a percentage of the provider's charge. Then you have out-of-pocket maximum. And that's the amount that you have to meet in order for the insurance company to start paying 100%. So if you have a lot of activity in your medical world and bills and whatnot, you'll hit that and then your insurance company will cover 100%. But the easiest way to track all this, Joan, is on your EOB, on your portal. All the information is there. It's really um, a great idea. And now, which is really impressive, fast forward from 10 years ago when you're on the whole, on hold with your insurance company for sometimes an hour. Now they've streamlined it. You can sometimes get in there and they'll call you back. And the latest tool is you can actually email them and say, you know what, is my flu shot free? And they'll email you back and say, yes, it's covered. So this is a really good tool to use. So I, I can't emphasize enough to get that, get that up online. But the biggest thing I want people to know is when you get that, you'll get an explanation of benefit and you'll get a bill from your provider. Let's say it's your doctor's bill. You don't pay that doctor's bill till you verify your explanation of benefit, what your insurance company says you need to pay. Those numbers can be totally different. So it's important to verify that. And if you have any questions, you have every right to go back to both the insurance company, I highly recommend you do, and the biller, the provider, because coding is wrong a lot of times. And I'll leave you with an interesting statistic that many people are not aware of, but 80% of hospital bills have errors on them and can cost thousands of dollars. So remember, check everything, trust and verify, but check everything. Make sure you do an appeal if you don't agree with me and ask ask questions. Get professional help if you need it because it can be complicated out there, Joan. Lori, that's really great information. And, and if you'd like to learn more about this topic or Lori and her work, you can visit healthlinkadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. <music> joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.